0: Hi everyone, Gemma here. You may have noticed in your download feed, the podcast has a new name and logo. Big thanks to Zoe Oman for her designs. Welcome to Ronk Radio. We've rebranded for a couple of reasons. The PEM podcast was a mouthful when said in full and was only really a test name while we waited to see if anyone was actually interested in a physics and engineering for medicine podcast. We're so glad you're interested, so it's time for a better name. It's also a chance to pay tribute to our scientific history. Wilhelm Röntgen was one of the fathers of modern medical technology, the first ever Nobel Prize for physics for his discovery of the X-ray in 1895. It'll be the same radio-style chat show as before, talking about great new research every month with interesting people. So let's get straight into this month's episode with Dr. Rob Moss, lecturer in Applied Radiation Physics at UCL.
1: So Applied Radiation Physics, that sounds kind of broad. What do you do?
2: Applied Radiation Physics to me is about developing techniques and technologies using X-rays and other forms of ionising radiation to solve some of the biggest challenges in security, in manufacturing uh, and in medicine. There's a lot of interesting work that we're doing to help solve those challenges.
1: We had Sandra Olivo on in the last series talking about a specific brand of X-ray imaging. Is the work that you do in that area, or is it is it more of a traditional use of x-rays?
2: Yeah, what Sandro does is a technique called phase contrast imaging, which is different to conventional x-ray imaging. What we're working with primarily is a technique called x-ray diffraction, and that technique is quite interesting because we're, we're not looking at how x-rays are absorbed by a sample. We're looking at how the x-rays are scattered, and the direction the x-rays are scattered in is completely dependent on the material. And so we can effectively use X-ray diffraction as a way of getting a material fingerprint.
1: Right, okay, so I have come across this. So why do materials scatter X-rays?
2: All atoms are surrounded by electrons and the X-rays can interact with those electrons directly. The scattering process that we're interested in is called coherent scatter. And what that means is we we have an X-ray come in, it interacts with an electron, and then it is caused to change direction, but it keeps its energy. Now, because atoms are located at a distance that is comparable to the wavelength of the X-rays, where you get scattering from neighbouring atoms, you get constructive interference. And it's that constructive interference that gives rise to different scattering intensities at different angles. So really, it's an interference effect. And so if the distance between the atoms changes slightly or the type of atom changes, that's how we end up with differences in the diffraction pattern.
1: The x-rays will scatter off any atom, and if you've got too close together, then that's going to determine the interference pattern that you get on the other side.
2: That's correct, yeah.
1: Right, okay. I think I jumped the gun in the way that I often do and assumed we were talking about imaging, because that's what I'm always thinking about. But x-ray diffraction, it, and not really an imaging technique, is it? I guess you get a kind of image out of the other side, but it's more about sensing and fingerprinting, is that right?
2: what's really interesting is that you really need to combine a technique like x-ray diffraction with imaging and the reason for that is to be able to contextualize the result that you get out examples of where we've used it is in security screening and for cancer diagnostics but the x-ray diffraction result in itself is not really enough to tell the security operative or the surgeon or the pathologist what's going on so you need to combine it with some kind of imaging
1: OK, so you will do X-ray imaging at the same time as doing X-ray diffraction.
2: Yeah, that's right. X-ray imaging, definitely. But actually, optical imaging can also be useful because you can overlay the result of the X-ray diffraction on top of something that the operator is already very familiar with.
1: Yeah, OK. So could you give us an example of what you might do and say you've piqued my interest with the security? What might you do with X-ray diffraction and security?
2: Well a common security application is uh, screening baggage at airports so at the moment you know that you put your bag on a conveyor and it goes through an x-ray machine and that just captures a standard transmission x-ray image. One of the problems is that identifying a suspicious item relies on the operator visually looking at an image which is then prone to human error but when they do identify something that's suspicious the process to clear that alarm is quite lengthy so they have to take the bag off they have to go with the passenger and they have to open it and they have to manually sort through the bag. X-ray diffraction offers an almost an add-on capability to the normal screening that's done at airports where you can use it to get a material fingerprint for the suspicious item whilst it's still in the bag. So you could imagine that if you were interested in looking for explosives, you would measure the item of interest and then you would compare that to a database of diffraction measurements of different types of explosives. This obviously is a, is a good thing because it increases the throughput at the airport. And it also means that people don't have to get right up close to items that may be dangerous.
0: When you talk about fingerprinting, does every single material in the world have a diffraction fingerprint that you'd be able to recognize or is it specific things like specific explosives, for example?
2: Yeah, so in theory, Every material has a different fingerprint, so X-ray diffraction relies on the position of atoms in the material, which atoms are next to which and how far away atoms are from each other. And by definition, every different material must have a different atomic structure. So theoretically, every material has a unique fingerprint. There are some technical limitations that mean that it can be quite challenging to resolve one type of material from another, but... In an example like security screening, you know that you are interested in identifying explosives and drugs and chemicals and, and that kind of thing. So so you can automatically already slim down your database to those items of interest.
1: Well, I can't get my head around with this, Rob, is the scale, because I think I understand this idea that you put x-rays through a material and depending on the atomic structure, so the shape on a really atomic scale, the x-rays scatter in a different way. So if you look at the directions they come out at, then you've got this fingerprint based on this kind of map of directions of the x-rays. But that's obviously on a very tiny scale, this interaction. I can't get my head around how this would fit into something like an airport scanner, where I can see a human sitting there looking at a big image of a suitcase. But then how how do we link this macroscopic world to this tiny fingerprint that must exist on a nanometer or subnanometer resolved scale?
2: So the diffraction pattern depends on that sub nanometer scale, but you want to get an average over the whole material. So if your material occupies a fairly large volume, then actually what you need to do is be selective about where you're measuring from. So a suitcase is perhaps several tens of centimetres thick. And what you want to make sure is that you're measuring just the diffraction that comes from the item of interest. And with that in mind, what we have to do is actually use some special x-ray shielding on the detector side called collimation, which actually allows us to focus the position within the bag that we're looking at. And actually this special shielding, this collimation can be quite complex. Some other work that we've done in this area is to use techniques like 3D printing to print very complex geometrical shapes to achieve this spatial selectivity.
0: So if I understand the sort of whole setup, you're firing x-rays at a suitcase. Do you sort of steer the x-rays at a particular item that you're kind of interested in? And then you get a single fingerprint. And what, what does that fingerprint look like physically?
2: You're right. This illustrates how important the imaging is, because what you do is take your normal x-ray image of the bag, and then maybe the operator says, oh, OK, that item in the top left corner is, is interesting, and maybe they would click on it. And then your X-ray diffraction operates with a narrow pencil beam of X-rays. So you would move your pencil beam so that it interacts with that bit of the sample. And then you measure the X-rays that are scattered off axis, so outside of that main beam. What we recalled, the conventional X-ray diffraction pattern is a measure of the intensity of X-rays as a function of angle from the primary X-ray beam. In our case, we're using a detector that's quite clever. It doesn't just tell us the position of the X-rays, but it also tells us the energy of the X-rays. So what we effectively get is a diffraction pattern, which is a function of angle and energy. We get this 3D matrix, and in the past, what we've done is use that and sum all of that together, because if we have a large area detector, it means that we can collect data quickly and we can get a diffraction pattern quickly. Which is good for applications like airport security but actually we've been doing some work recently with breast cancer where time is less of a constraint which may allow us to do some further processing on this three-dimensional matrix which might help us resolve different materials more clearly
0: and i'm imagining kind of going a bit back to a slightly more macro level this x-ray that you're steering at a specific object Is also going through you know the outer structure of the suitcase and maybe other items so the diffraction pattern that you get is that sort of like a summation of all the different materials it's going through and then how do you extract what you're looking for from that?
2: Okay, there's some complications, of course, because actually the x-rays that are most useful for diffraction are relatively low energy as far as x-rays are concerned, which means that they are more susceptible to being absorbed by the sample. If your sample is very thick, then attenuation becomes a problem and the signal that we get out can be reduced. So we need to have a favorable setup. But you're also right that what we measure is a linear combination of all of the different materials that are in the path of the X-ray beam. And that's why the collimation is so important, because we can use that special X-ray shield in the collimation to pick where we receive scattered photons from. So we could ignore the front face of the suitcase, we could ignore the back face of the suitcase, and we can just look at the stuff in the middle. Added on top of that, we're also using a technique which is x-ray diffraction computed tomography. So in this case, it's, it's a very much slower technique and may not be suitable for applications like airport security, but actually could be a really useful technique in something like breast cancer pathology.
0: So I imagine you then would get a sort of image of the actual anatomical structure of the breast, but then you'd be able to overlay on that the actual chemical composition of the tissue.
2: Yeah, so the holy grail would be to be able to do a technique like this at the time of screening. So when a mammograph is taken, we would also do x-ray diffraction analysis. The problem, of course, is that it requires that the sample remains fairly still, and it also requires a fairly significant amount of radiation to be delivered. And we don't really want to be doing that to otherwise healthy people. Actually, where this has probably got the greatest benefit in breast cancer is during breast cancer surgery to help the surgeon ensure that they have removed enough tissue. One technique is breast conserving surgery, where a surgeon attempts to remove the tumour surrounded by a layer of healthy tissue, which is called the margin. And what we would like to make sure is that the surgeon has removed enough of the tissue. If any cancerous cells get left behind, then there's a chance that the patient could suffer local recurrence and may be required to come back for further treatment, which could be further surgery, it could be chemotherapy, it could be radiotherapy. But if we can give the surgeon the best chance of removing all of the tumour, first time around that's a positive outlook for the patient
1: you might take a chunk of tissue out and put it in an x-ray diffraction imaging machine and say is the margin of this piece healthy or cancerous and if it's healthy you know you've done enough
2: exactly that's right yeah if we can confirm that there's a healthy tissue margin around the whole specimen that's been excised then we're good to go
1: so what is it about x-ray diffraction that allows you to identify cancerous from non-cancerous parts of tissue
2: Yeah, this is really interesting and I I don't think anyone has really come up with a completely conclusive reason. The most likely hypothesis is that cancer leads to rapidly growing cells and those rapidly growing cells are associated with a collagen structure that is in some way altered compared to the normal and actually x-ray diffraction is sensitive to that collagen arrangement and so we, we think that it's this variation in collagen. It's actually quite easy to distinguish between fat and other tissue, but it's slightly more tricky to differentiate between normal healthy tissue and cancerous tissue. But breast cancer comes in a lot of different forms. And so actually doing a full analysis of all of the different types of cancer is probably some work that's outstanding and needs to be tackled.
0: Where on the sort of clinical practice to pure research scale is this?
2: There's been quite a bit of work done in the past looking at x-ray diffraction and breast tissue but all of that work has been done with a laboratory setup that's fairly slow, not really geared for clinical deployment. It's only really been in the past, I don't know, five years or so where we have started to develop this technique that uses this three-dimensional, we get this 3D matrix of x-ray diffraction data which would allow us to go at a speed that is more suitable for clinical deployment. We had a study funded by Breast Cancer Now where we did a pilot study in collaboration with uh, Dundee University where we obtained a a relatively small number of breast tissue samples uh, and those breast tissue samples were selected by the pathologist to include some amount of healthy tissue and some amount of cancerous tissue. We used our diffraction technique, to collect diffraction data and we got a good publication out of that but we have actually uh, doing some further work now to reanalyze that data because what we want to do is to use machine learning and artificial intelligence which have a innate ability to really tease out what are the very subtle variations between different diffraction patterns and therefore different tissue types. So that's where we are. We're still a lab based system, but we can envisage what the clinical system looks like. It's a unit that's probably about the size of a desktop printer. It has a sample holder that you put your excise tissue in, and it does X ray imaging. So maybe it does 3D imaging of the specimen, and then it also does diffraction and perhaps three dimensional diffraction, so X ray diffraction CT, and presents that to the surgeon or the pathologist that's there at the time of surgery and so they have the diffraction data presented to them with the image that they're already very familiar with analysing.
1: What form would the diffraction data take in that kind of scenario Rob? Because presumably the surgeon doesn't want to see data about which directions x-rays have scattered in. What would you turn that into?
2: Probably the most useful thing is to have some sort of colour code overlaid on the underlying image and what we're looking at is using techniques like machine learning and artificial intelligence to do some sort of automated classification. Maybe it'll have some database that it looks up against, but maybe what it's searching for is for key features and making some assessment of the diffraction pattern to classify it as fat or as normal healthy tissue or glandular tissue or whatever it classifies it as, and then overlay that as a colour code. What pathologists do is they take images and then they draw a boundary between different tissue types so maybe you could have the computer present that in the same sort of way drawing a boundary around things I don't think there would be any situation where the surgeon or the pathologist would be interested in looking at the raw data that's going on behind the scenes
0: so it sounds like to actually get this device into clinical practice, it's going to take a huge team of people, because I'm already thinking, like, if you wanted to have the computer draw around an area of suspicious tissue, you'd want to have some computer okay. scientists involved, uh, maybe some chemists. And then obviously you want to include the doctors and the clinicians that you're working with. So what does your team look like and what angles are they attacking this problem from?
2: It always amazes me when you start to think about projects like this, the scale of it and the skills and the expertise that you need to pull it off. And at the moment we're reanalyzing that data and actually it's some colleagues from the Department of Statistical Sciences that are looking at that. So we're starting to be tied up on the maths side. We have got clinical input from Cheltenham so we have a radiologist and pathologist from Cheltenham on board. We also have a breast cancer surgeon from UCLH who's very interested in our work and we're actually at the stage now where within my local team we're starting to put together our thoughts of how we take this forward towards funding.
0: So you've got this team of people from all different backgrounds, what exactly is your background?
2: I'm a physicist by training. I started by doing an undergraduate master's degree at the University of Kent. And actually, I stayed at Kent to do my PhD. My PhD was looking at the structure of different types of glass. And these glasses were all developed for biomedical applications. I was using techniques like x-ray diffraction and neutron diffraction to look at the structure. We were using these phosphate-based glasses where we were adding metal to them. Now phosphate glasses can be tailored in such a way that they will dissolve in the human body so they can be used as temporary supports after surgery for example and then over time they'll dissolve and disappear. But if we add metals like silver and copper and zinc, those ions also get released as the material dissolves but they have an innate antimicrobial effect as well. So effectively providing sterilization of the wound site, which has the effect of reducing the number of people that need to have antibiotics administered because of infection after surgery. And then after my PhD, I looked at postdocs, but I wanted to get a job that was kind of forever. I didn't like the idea of fixed term contracts and that kind of thing. So I finished my PhD and I went and worked for the Ministry of Defence at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory. I spent four and a half years there and most of what I did was using techniques like x-rays and neutrons for the detection of improvised explosive devices. In the first instance, This was really about supporting the efforts in Afghanistan because those operations were still underway and still an important aspect of UK defence. But then as that started to wind down, we started to look more at homeland defence and so starting to get more involved in more conventional homeland bomb disposal. So someone finds a suspicious package left on a train platform and someone has to do something about it. The techniques that I was employing there were techniques like X-ray diffraction, you know, similar way that we've talked about. So at that time, I was using techniques like X-ray diffraction to look at the different types of explosives that are left in these uh, devices. And also a technique called X-ray backscatter imaging. Transmission imaging is great. It's probably the highest resolution image that you can get of something through a barrier. But it does require that you have a source on one side and a detector on the other side. And so that can be difficult in a situation where a bag has been left against a wall, for example. So X-ray backscatter imaging allows you to capture an image of the internals of a device from one side. One of the challenges in that situation is that everything needs to be mounted on a robot because you don't want to send people down close to something that is potentially dangerous. Of course, what you really want to do is to identify, is this a bomb that I need to do something with or is this just someone's lunch that they've left? Because the operation to render safer device is quite disruptive in terms of people going about their day-to-day business. So if you can just say, oh... It's a false alarm. You can just take it away and people can get on. And then after four and a half years there, I took up a one year postdoc at UCL. After deciding that I didn't want to do fixed term contracts, I decided to take the plunge. And that was probably the best move that I made because actually whilst the research I did at DSTL was good, academic research offers you a different level of flexibility. I spent one year building a system based on x-ray diffraction to be able to screen small items, small post, I designed it around being able to scan an A5 envelope, for example, with the view of using that to look for chemicals that are put inside of envelopes, these sort of unknown white powders that end up scattered over people's desks, that sort of thing, maybe using it for identifying explosives or drugs in small packets. Whilst I developed that system, you know, it had a lot more applications than just the security. So we did some work using that system to look at counterfeit pharmaceuticals, and also to look at breast tissue samples to try and characterise them in terms of healthy tissue and cancerous tissue. And then in 2018, I was lucky enough to be appointed to a lectureship at UCL, and that is what I've been doing for the past couple of years.
0: It's really cool that you've got a technique that you're an expert in and there's so many different applications and it's really interesting to see the overlap between security and medical imaging. One thing I'm really interested in is you said that academic research gives you a bit more freedom. Can you talk a bit about research in the MOD, what that was like and how that is different? Because I've not heard anyone who's worked there before.
2: On a very high level, it's a customer-driven kind of environment. So you'll have a customer which may be, for example, the Department of Transport. They may have a requirement. They may say, oh, we want to be able to screen bags faster at an airport that requirement filters its way down to an organisation like DSTL and effectively you're bidding against those requirements. And so you have to construct a project plan. So that's not dissimilar to how academia operates, but it's sort of a requirements-led approach and the customer is still very involved because it's more like a contract than it is a grant you have to report to the customer. And I understand that that's very similar in terms of, you know, you have grant funding agencies in academia, but you have a bit more flexibility in your approach, I guess.
1: I guess you get to say in academia, this is something that I think is worth doing, whereas it sounds like it's more responsive to what someone else has told you they want.
2: That's a fair summary of the difference between academia and uh, industrial stroke government research.
1: At the same time, I mean, it must be gratifying to know that what you're working on is meeting an immediate need that is well-defined enough that people are reaching out to you to ask for it.
2: Yes, yeah, so though one thing that I always found a problem was there's a bit of a disconnect between the people who write the requirements and the people that actually do the job. And so you have these requirements, you work hard to try and meet those requirements, and when you talk to the people that actually use it, they say... Well, I wouldn't use that. Right. So in that respect, it can be a bit frustrating. I don't want my time at DSTL to seem negative at all because it wasn't. I think I got some valuable skills. I think it's really helped me in my current career. And I certainly got to do things there that I could never do anywhere else at any other organisation.
1: In fairness, I mean, the academic model can suffer that kind of problem as well. There's loads of stuff that we think might be interesting or worthwhile, it turns out wasn't quite on the mark or that disconnect between what's actually practically needed and what somebody thinks is needed just operates in a different way.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think like, especially with medical physics, it's so important to include the clinicians and the people who are actually going to be using the technology, which is why it's so great that your team is really multidisciplinary
2: yeah i think working at dstl really it really helped me understand how it is so important to involve people at every stage not just the development but also the use and get those people involved at an early stage sometimes it can be difficult to sell that idea if you've got users and you're saying oh i want to develop this technique in the lab that might actually help you in the future they might think oh it's far too early for me to get involved but actually you really need that input but sometimes it can be quite hard to define what that input is at such an early stage but you just know that you're going to need it. (laughs) Yeah it's difficult to define and, and not very clear but you can kind of understand what I mean.
1: Yeah I'm interested in that one because a lot of people in medical physics and biomedical engineering do say that and it's clear that in certain projects it's really necessary At the same time, I've kind of got time for the more purist medical physics where you're just interested in in, you know, more of the fundamentals of something that might one day be useful as well. Mm. It's, guess there's a spectrum.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a spectrum. I mean, some of the things that I haven't talked about in my group is, for example, we're developing actually new radiation detectors. People ask, OK, so what's the point? How's this going to help in medicine? How's this help medical physics? And at the moment, it's a bit like, well, let's see. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's really interesting and we should do it because it's very interesting. But let's see.
0: How do you yeah. develop new detectors? Like, what does that look like?
2: We have a collaboration. So it, it's uh, the Department of Medical Physics, ourselves and the Institute of Materials Discovery at UCL, and also the Departments of Physics and Chemistry at the University of Surrey, going right from the very beginning. So we're actually synthesizing the materials to make the detector. And in this case, it's a semiconductor from a family of materials called perovskites. So we're synthesizing this material. We're creating a device. In this case, we are pressing the powders that are created from the synthesis we are adding metal contacts on the front and back faces. We end up pressing these pellets, these sort of tablet-shaped things. We add a, a gold contact on the front and the back face. So now we have kind of like a sandwich. And then we connect those two faces to a voltage source and when x-rays interact with the perovskite material they actually have the effect of liberating electrons and those free electrons are then able to drift through the material and that movement of charge is a current electrical current and so when we turn the x-rays on we see an increase in the electrical current and that is the fundamentals of a solid state x-ray detector.
1: What's the key difference with this new type of detector, this new type of material, compared to a conventional
2: one? So if we talk about a conventional solid state detector, examples of silicon or cadmium telluride, the pursuit there is always to create a single crystal, so a continuous matrix of atoms that are nicely arranged. And that can be quite difficult, particularly in uh, the case of cadmium telluride and cadmium zinc telluride, which yeah, would be considered mainstream solid state detectors. But they're quite difficult to grow single crystals in large quantities. And so that means that the yield is poor and that makes them expensive. What we're trying to do here is to develop a new type of detector where we create a polycrystalline powder. And then we mechanically press those powders together to create these detectors. The advantage here is the production is relatively straightforward and relatively cheap. By doing this mechanical pressing, we can make detectors any size or shape we want. Uh, We can change the thickness, you know, depending on the application. And then we can start doing some clever things. So not just putting a single metal contact on the front and back face, but actually putting a matrix or a set of pixels on the faces, and we can then start to use it to create images. So now we have sensitive pixels rather than just a large sensitive area. A further interest is being able to change the chemistry. So perovskites is a family of materials where there's some examples of some very common ones which are easy to make. But actually you can start to do some more complicated chemistry where you can start to introduce elements that have some affinity for absorbing neutrons. And being able to do gamma and neutron co-detection would be quite a significant achievement in the world of things like nuclear security. We can then use the output of the detector to be able to not just say there is a source of radiation present, but tell what type of radiation is present. That is an interesting avenue, but we're at the stage at the moment where we are just trying different things with these materials to see what we can achieve.
1: So it's a material that could detect x-rays or can detect x-rays, but also has this offers this flexibility that you can mould it into any shape. You can potentially turn it into an x-ray camera rather than a single detector. And you can potentially add these additional functionalities like multifunctional detection of different things.
2: Yeah, multifunctional detection. And actually a direction that we're really interested in going is being able to use this material to 3D print detectors. There's already conductive filament available on the market, but actually could we mix our material with that conductive filament to in some way create a radiation sensitive printable material? And that I think would be really quite an interesting thing to achieve.
1: I mean, it sounds cool,
2: just straight away. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds cool. I think the the bonus of that, it gives you ultimate flexibility on constructing your detector in geometries that maybe isn't possible by conventional methods.
1: Rob, well, can you explain like a couple of examples maybe of why we need different shapes? Like when might we need it? Oh,
2: one? yeah. OK, so a need for different shape detectors. I mean, there's a couple of applications. There's one application in modern manufacturing where you're interested in looking at the quality of welds in pipes, and these pipes could be bent into any shape. Of course, they're curved to start with, but they could also have right angles and different angles so if there was a specific joint on a particular type of machine that you were really interested in knowing you could print or you could create a detector that conforms to the shape of the objects and another area of interest is that we've been doing some work where you can use the physical shape of the detector to help you understand where a source of radiation is located so we're then in a position where we can say there's a source of radiation present we can identify what type of radiation it is and we can give you some position. We can tell you what direction that source of radiation is in. Those three things together can be really quite an interesting concept for use in places like train stations and airports, where maybe you want to monitor lots of people at once and identify if any of those people are carrying some source of radiation. And if you have many of these things, maybe you can even track them as they walk through the train terminal. You can determine which train they get on, You can track them when they get off the train, you can follow them to where they go. There's kind of endless possibilities.
1: I guess one part of what I'm interested in is how do you turn an X-ray diffraction pattern into knowledge about what it is you're looking at, but how do you know it's that material and not some other material?
2: You've hit on a good point, and actually this is probably one of the biggest challenges going forward. Until now, we've relied on relatively simple approaches to data analysis, so using fairly basic techniques like principal component analysis to kind of group materials of a similar kind together to sort of tell us what sort of family they come from also applied techniques like 2D cross correlation which gives a measure of similarity so maybe you've got a database and you've got your unknown you test your unknown against every one of the database values which of course is incredibly inefficient What we've started to do now is actually apply some similar approaches to those, but actually building in some knowledge of the physics, some knowledge of the geometry, and some knowledge of the kind of materials that we're interested in detecting. And using better statistical techniques and some a priori information could help us make a more rigorous identification, or at least characterization of the material that we've captured data about.
1: Am I right in thinking that in the extreme, you can rebuild the atomic structure of something from its x-ray diffraction pattern?
2: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's where I started. So my PhD was really about looking at this structure of glass and actually rebuilding the structure in terms of how many oxygens surround every phosphorus atom. Now, to do that you need to know some things about the sample so you need to know the density the volume you need to make some corrections for attenuation of the x-ray beam where we're coming from with our current work is those things are an unknown so being able to take the kind of diffraction data we're collecting and reconstruct the atomic structure would be challenging shall we say yeah Uh,
1: There's so much more going on. We've talked about this idea of a suitcase and a beam that's travelling through loads of different materials. And in the medical domain, I guess it's the same situation. So it's coming at it from a totally different end, really, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah, yeah. And the technique of X-ray diffraction was probably most heavily developed to start with because they knew they could use it to reveal the atomic structure of of objects, which of course was really important. But yeah, you're definitely right. We're sort of stepping back from that a bit and getting to the point where we're just using it as a pattern to identify. And actually, the materials that you can choose from as an identifier is application driven, right? You're not interested in identifying what type of sunscreen someone's got in their suitcase, but you are interested in identifying whether the material inside that bottle is sunscreen or whether it's a chemical weapons agent so you can start to really tie down your library by thinking hard about the application
1: just a slightly silly question i guess rob i don't know what the answer to this might be whether there are amusing examples of similar materials or like really dissimilar materials that happen to have the same x-ray diffraction pattern an extreme example might be if somebody's sandwiches did have the same x-ray diffraction pattern as some kind of explosive and they kept getting their one type of sandwich picked up on an airport scanner or something like that
2: To be honest it's not something that I've come across (laughs) but I suppose if you're always blowing up ham sandwiches that might be something that needs to be investigated.
1: I just wondered if there were cases where materials that aren't really similar were mistaken for each other or something like that.
0: You need to call it the ham sandwich problem. (laughs)
2: Yeah that's right. Something that is quite heavily pursued is actually intentionally looking for materials that are similar. Clearly, you don't want to use large quantities of explosive in your lab. So is there an inert material that's a good simulant? I think in terms of transmission imaging, a reasonable alternative to C4 explosive is actually marzipan.
1: Right, so, OK, so well, that works then. So if somebody was, for example, taking a load of marzipan on a plane with them, they could get into some difficulty with the
2: scanner. Well, I suppose, yeah, if someone had a load of marzipan in their case, you probably want to open it. Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, <laughs> the objective here in the aviation screening case is not to completely take the current process out of the loop, but it's just yeah. to help resolve alarms before you take that next step of the process. So.
1: I, I suppose <laughs> he's saying that uh, you might recognise the cake. There might be other clues that it was marzipan.
2: <laughs> maybe, maybe. It's the, it's the birthday candles alongside there.
1: Well, thanks to Rob Moss for sharing his research and career with us. This was a University College London podcast presented by Gemma Bale with myself, Jamie Guggenheim. It was produced by Billy Dennis with music from Kevin MacLeod. And if you like the podcast, please do share it. Gemma and I will be chatting with a new researcher at the end of each month, covering a different area of medical physics and biomedical engineering.
0: If you're interested in studying with us at UCL, please visit our department website www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash medical hyphen physics hyphen biomedical hyphen engineering. We have undergraduate and master's courses including study by distance learning and PhD vacancies which can be found on our website at various times throughout the year. You might also consider following the department on Twitter at UCL MedPhys, that's UCL Bye for now. Bye bye.